I'm going to be broaching a very serious topic this morning as we are going to be talking about the subject of abortion. So will you bow your head with me and ask God to lead us? Heavenly Father, you are the God of creation. You created us in your own image. You did us together in our mother's wombs and you knew us even before we were born. And you know every single day of our lives and how it will unfold even before one of them is lived. As we explore this difficult issue this morning, we ask that you would reveal your will and yourself in your word. Teach us to hear you and to follow. We pray in Jesus' holy name, amen. Back in the spring of 2020, our niece and her husband went to the doctors to check on her pregnancy. She received a terrible prognosis. The doctor said, and these are the words the doctor used, the baby was incompatible with life. They were strongly urged to abort their child, and they said that he would not live, and if he did, he would be what we crudely call a vegetable throughout his short life. Well, this is one of those so-called hard cases that you hear about so much when people talk about or argue about the subject of abortion. Other options were not seriously considered by the doctor. Abortion was the recommended option. Now, more and more, it seems physicians are encouraging family and single people alike to make that choice, to make abortion the decision. Even friends and family have exerted a huge amount of peer pressure to try to persuade women to, well, that abortion is the drug of choice in the unexpected pregnancy. You know that in the June of this year, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, a decision that was made back in 1973. It was ruled that uh, the Constitution of the United States protected pregnant women's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. Well, this year, there is a new decision. Um, and according to Forbes, here's a, here's a summary that I thought was quite good. Uh, it was effectively a ruling that abortion is no longer a nationwide right and giving the states the power to ban the procedure. I think that's a good summary of, of the outcome. Uh, it's interesting to read the various judges on this. Judge Samuel Alito called Roe versus Wade an abuse of judicial authority. He reasoned that the right to abortion is not expressly mentioned in the Constitution, and it isn't deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition. Well, you've all seen what's happened since then. You know, if you have opened a newspaper, watched television, looked at social media, you've seen this kind of firestorm going on. There's a firestorm of outrage among pro-choice folks and a huge celebration among those who oppose the law, including probably most Roman Catholics and evangelical Protestant Christians. Well, I waited a few months to jump into this subject because it was one that I'd already planned to speak about this summer but also because I just needed a little processing time. I needed some time to think through and to pray through some of these issues and also to consider some of the 
the new things that were coming out that I had not heard before and I wanted to share with you this morning. Like many uh, Christians across the country, I believe that abortion is one of the great evils experienced here. Even more than that, I believe that abortion is a sin against the unborn and against God. And I'm going to spend some time today to show you why I believe that and why I believe uh, that the Bible teaches about matters of life that overrule any thought of abortion. Now, if you disagree with me, I'm going to ask you to be patient and hear me out all the way to the end. And if you've personally experienced an abortion, I want you to know that God loves you, and I love you, and there is forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I know this might be triggering for you. We uphold you in prayer, and we ask God to minister to your spirit. As Christians, I believe that it is very important for us to remember that our beliefs are not determined by prevailing culture. Worldview matters. Where you get your information that helps you choose how you're going to live your life is important. A Christian worldview always starts with Christ. It always starts with the life and teaching of Jesus. And it always starts with Scripture, which is our authoritative guide for belief and for practice. You know, more and more I'm hearing Christians adopting a non-Christian worldview as they decide on issues. Sometimes they're even accepting views that are hostile to those taught by Christianity in the Bible. That's problematic for me, especially if you say that you are a follower of Jesus. We don't get to pick and choose what we like or dislike in the Bible based on popular decisions on the internet or our friends or our family or even our own life experience. As followers of Jesus, we choose to follow Jesus. And that's not always an easy choice, I recognize that. And we cannot choose for other people where they should go, but we can choose for ourselves to follow Jesus. Now, I want to stop and say that when we disagree with others, we need to show the love of Jesus. When we're talking to others on subjects like this or when we're talking with one another, we need to love one another. We need to show Jesus. Because if we don't, all we are is that clanging cymbal. All we are is that noise. It's not going to have any effect at all if Jesus isn't in control. So my question this morning is, why can't we support abortion as the choice or even a choice when dealing with unexpected pregnancies? Now, for me, it's all about God's view of life and how he reveals that in Scripture. So, so I want to share a couple of things with you this morning that hopefully will be helpful to you. First of all, I want to talk about how we are made in the image of God. Now, what does that mean, made in God's image? We did talk about that a few weeks ago. First of all, we didn't create ourselves. We didn't think ourselves into being. We had a creator. 
God, who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's God the Trinity speaking in Genesis 1 when he says that God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then if you jump into the Genesis 2 account of creation, it also says God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. We have great value to God, far more than any other part of creation. You know, when God created humans, he pronounced creation very good. Uh, I love the Hebrew word tov, for good here, it means more than that. It means things like beautiful and complete. Humans completed God's creation. In Genesis 2, humans are complete when they're male and female, and it says God breathes something of himself into them to bring them life. They are special. Now, we don't reflect God physically because God is spirit. He's different, but we do reflect God's goodness, his love, his creativity, uh, his sense of right and wrong we have. We're self-aware. We're rational thinkers. We're spiritual beings. We're ethical and, and we're moral. All those things reflect God. And we are far different from the animals. That is very distinct here. We are God's special creation. And nothing else in this world, nothing, has the same value to God. Now, I love my cats. You know I love my cats. You see all those cat pictures. You know, I'm sort of the typical internet user. I see post all those funny cat pictures that are funny to me, but probably not funny to anybody else. But they are not my children. I love my children far more than I love my animals. And God intends it that way. Throughout Scripture, God affirms the value of every human life, from children in the womb to the elderly. Uh, historically, we could take you back to uh, a book that was written towards the end of the first century uh, that just kind of tells us about life and practice among Christians, those early followers of Jesus, around the time that John was imprisoned on Patmos, perhaps. We're not quite sure the exact date, but this document called the Didache, it has an, ex an expressive forbidding of abortion among Christians. You need to know that as the centuries went on, that the Romans had practices like they would leave their children if they didn't want them out in the woods to be devoured by animals. Or they would leave them along the shores of the Tiber to be exposed. Or they'd even throw them into the water. And Christians would hide along the edge of the woods or they would hide along the edge of the riverbank and they would watch for those children being cast aside and they would jump in and they would save those children and they would raise them as their own. Well, why did they do that? They did it because of the value of human life. 
that God loves these little ones. You know, in popular thinking, you are not a person until you can think. Secular abortion activists have actually unnaturally separated humans into person and body. So unborn children are not yet persons. They're just a body in this view. They're just a blob of flesh, and therefore they can be gotten rid of without any moral consequences. Now, now this separated view actually has a name. It's called personhood theory. And personhood theory says that a child is alive like an organism, but is not a person until birth. Now, this has actually been around a while. You may not be aware that this is what it is, but that as far back as the Roe versus Wade decision, Judge Harry Blackman used personhood theory to render the decision. He said in his, in his, his uh, can't think of a word, but in his article that relates to that, you know, in the decision he wrote, a baby is not a person when unborn. And he wrote that the 14th Amendment didn't apply to protect the unborn because they were not persons. This is an early form of personhood theory. Now, as, as Christians, we actually agree with most scientists when we say that life begins at conception. It seems like our society believes that about everything but humans. We believe it about birds, about horses. There's a reason they pay all that ridiculous money for stud fees so that they can get another horse, hopefully a racehorse, a champion. You know, and we believe that, that even from conception, that that's, that's a real horse. But then we turn to human beings and we say, well, that's not really a human being until they begin to think. But we believe that everything necessary for life and for personhood is already present in the embryo. And science confirms that. You know, even staunch abortion activists have started to acknowledge that part. For example, there's a, a prominent writer in England who writes a lot on this issue. Her name is Antonia Senior. And, and she says, yes, abortion is killing, but it's a lesser evil. And she goes on to say that to defend women's rights, you must be prepared to kill. Her statement. Now, that sounds pretty radical, doesn't it? Except it's not. That's actually pretty mainstream. Some radicals are proposing what they call afterbirth abortions. Have you heard about this? Uh, these two guys who were publishing in the Journal of Medical Ethics, um, two philosophers, they wrote, they proposed that if partial birth abortion is allowed, then afterbirth abortion should be allowed too. Uh, they want to replace the word infanticide, which means child murder, with what they call afterbirth abortion. This is a new term. And this is a direct quote. Let me underline this up here so you can see it. They said, we claim that killing a newborn could be ethically permissible in all circumstances where abortion would be. Now, now think about that. They say the value of human life is, is what you choose it to be not what it already is. They use personhood theory to say that the brain 
isn't really developed until after birth. So the baby isn't even a person. In fact, even after birth, that baby isn't a person yet because that brain's not really fully functioning. And that makes it fair game, just like the fetus. The baby isn't a person, only a future or potential person. So at birth, they have no moral value, so they can be killed. Now, these guys are, are gaining an ear. This is in a prominent journal. And they have places where they are professors at universities where they're also teaching this same stuff. Now, again, you think this is really radical, but it's not brand new. Uh, James Watson, who co-discovered the, the DNA double uh, helix molecule, said that we could wait up to three days to decide if a child should be allowed to live. You might think, well, nobody's crazy enough to believe that. But there is a very prominent lobby group in California right now trying to pass this, trying to get this into law. Currently, There are some pretty extreme views out there, but they are much more mainstream than you would think. Now, if you want to read more, I want to recommend a book to you this morning. You might want to write this down. The book is called Love Thy Body. It's by Dr. Nancy Piercy, and, and she is um, a scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. And I have found this book to be highly highly influencing of my views. It's not only reshaping some of the things I've been thinking on this subject, but it's also reinforcing so many. And, it, and it's not just about this subject, but it does such a beautiful job of talking about abortion and helping us understand a Christian worldview that I really recommend it. And a lot of my ideas this morning are kind of formed by this, and I'm gonna be using some of her examples today as well. Uh, I would say that this is the single best resource that I have come across in a long time. And I've read a lot of books and a lot of articles on the subject, but I do think this is one that you might want to consider putting in your library. Okay, let me move on. The Bible teaches that unborn life is known and valued by God. And Jeremiah, it's interesting, uh, you know, you read through these things and you just pass them by unless you look at them carefully. But in Jeremiah, God called him a prophet before he was even born. It says, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations before birth. I know what you're thinking here. Jeremiah is just waxing poetical. You know, it's just poetry. He's just sort of exaggerating a little. But why is this same idea, this same thought repeated over and over through Scripture? I was taught that when God repeats himself, we need to pay special attention. And there are a lot of verses we could be focusing on this morning. We can't look at them all, but I want to look at some key scriptures. And of course, the scripture that we often share the most when we talk about life before birth is this one in Psalm 139. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Let me read the rest of it for you. 
I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now the psalm reminds us that God had his hand intimately involved in creating us. He observed us. He can observe us as we are formed. And he foreknows all of the days that we're going to live before one even gets lived. But there's an even more convincing passage than that. It talks about personhood before birth. And it's about Jesus, the coming Messiah. In Luke chapter 1, Mary receives a visit from the angel Gabriel and finds out that she, who is still a virgin, was about to give birth to the Son of God. And though it's wildly improbable, she believed the angel. I'm sure she was astonished when the angel told her also that her cousin Elizabeth was pregnant because people thought that it was impossible for Elizabeth to have a baby. Elizabeth had been barren her entire life, and now she was growing old. So the very next day after this conversation with that angel, Mary runs as fast as she can. She gets up there to see her cousin. And this is what Luke writes. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, a little earlier in that chapter, Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, was doing his service at the temple when the same angel appeared to him. Now, one of the things he told him about the birth of this son who was to come, one of the things he said in verse 15, he said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So here we have babies leaping in the womb in the presence of the unborn Jesus. And John the Baptist, not even born yet, filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to read you the next verse. The last part of that verse again in the next verse. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, you might go past that and not see it. But Elizabeth calls the baby, not yet born, my Lord. She's speaking of the tiny embryo still in development as a person, the person of the Son of God and her unborn Lord. Unborn life is known and valued by God, even acknowledged as a person before birth, even filled with the Spirit before birth. Now, a lot of Christians were celebrating and excited Uh, just to see Roe versus Wade overturned. And we should celebrate that because it was a really bad law. 
But the problem continues. It hasn't gone away anywhere. I've read various estimates about how much changing that law would, would affect the number of abortions in the United States. And some of the best guesses are between about 12 and 14% maximum. Now, that's a lot of lives, and we can celebrate that. But the annual number is still very, very high. In 2020, there were 930,000 abortions performed. That's 2,548 every day, 106 every hour, one abortion every 34 seconds in the United States in that year. And if you remember, that was a hard year. That was one when we couldn't get out much. You know, whenever you bring up this subject, whenever you bring up this topic and you start talking to somebody about it, they always say, but what about the hard cases? What about the hard cases? Well, let me share a few things about that. According to Human Life International, only 3.5% of all abortions are for the so-called hard cases, like rape or incest or mental health or birth defects or the physical health of the mother. A survey, uh, and this is something to pay attention to, a survey of more than 2.4 million aborting women that was performed by six states from 1996 to 2020. This is 2.4 million women who had abortions. This gives us a pretty accurate estimate of the number of hard cases. Let me put that up here. 1.14% of abortions were performed to save the life or the physical health of the mother. 1.28% to preserve the mental health. 0.39% less than half of a percent in cases of rape or incest, 0.69% for fetal birth defects or eugenics. I think that would probably be higher in Canada, just from our knowledge personally, but a total of 3.50% for all of the hard cases combined, which leaves 96.5% of all abortions therefore performed for social or economic reasons. Wow. 96%. What's 96% what's of that, that huge 930,000? It's 892,800 abortions performed each year for reasons other than the hard cases. But we want to sometimes move the hard cases to the center of the argument instead of on the fringes where it is. And according to a, a poll released by, in June by Pew Research, 61% or 6 out of every 10 Americans believes that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. That is our secular culture. But I believe that God is calling us to be counterculture, to not swim with the stream, but swim against it. Did you know that half of all women who get abortions say that they were pressured into getting them? Parents, boyfriends, spouses, even their friends. And half of those women feel that it was morally wrong, but they went ahead and did it anyway. A survey by the Medical Science Monitor, Monitor shows that 78% of those who get abortions feel guilt afterwards. 
over half struggled with sadness and loss. That's also in Dr. Percy's book, by the way, the one I just talked about. Not only are children lost, but many women are devastated afterwards. Now, I, I just want to say again that there is forgiveness. There is support and life after. And please, if this is your struggle, do not suffer alone. There are so many who will walk with you in the aftermath if you'll let them. We are all sinners saved by grace. And we know that when we come to Jesus at any time and confess our sins, we can receive his forgiveness. And others will walk with us if we let them. Remember the niece I mentioned at the beginning? Her and her husband were told the devastating news that there was a problem with fetal development, that the child would not live long, if at all. If he lived, he would not have any quality of life at all. They should abort this child, they were told. They would have others, but they should abort this one. Well, Bennett was born with spina bifida. It's a challenge for sure. But after many challenges and some very difficult surgeries, Bennett just celebrated his second birthday. Ah, isn't that beautiful? A year to the day after that really devastating diagnosis, uh, Bonnie's niece, Natalie, wrote something that I, I want to share with you this morning. Bonnie's going to come and she's going to share that with you because I think it, it's, this is a mother's heart. This is a mother reflecting back to that year before and that devastating thing. Bonnie? This was written a year after his diagnosis day, March 2020, by Natalie's mom, or by Natalie. <laughs> As we currently sit in a waiting room at McMaster Hospital, for a routine appointment, I can't help but reminisce over our first appointment exactly a year ago today. A year ago today, we walked through these hospital doors for the first time, back before we even knew your name. A year ago today, as I laid on the ultrasound table for an hour, I prayed and pleaded that the first ultrasound was just a mistake. A year ago today, your dad held my hand in a small room as two doctors crushed every last hope that I was desperately clinging to. A year ago today, spina bifida was the least of our worries, since the doctors didn't expect you to even survive to term. Incompatible with life is what they said. A year ago today, I was crumpled on the floor of a hospital bathroom mourning you before I even got to meet you. A year ago today, I picked myself up off that floor and vowed to enjoy and cherish every moment we had, even if that time was incredibly limited. A year ago today, I didn't think I'd get the chance to meet you, let alone hold you, play with you, snuggle you, or watch you grow. So today, I thank God for the privilege of being in this waiting room with you and for the many times we will be in this very room.
Today and every day, I cherish every smile, every laugh, every coup, every snuggle, as well as every cry, every scream, and every night waking. Today, I will hug you a little tighter, snuggle you a little longer, and love you a little harder. Because one year ago today, I didn't think you would be here today. Not only did Bennett have his first or his second birthday here just uh, several weeks ago in July, but he's also expecting a baby brother, and uh, he's very, very excited about that. See, that's what this issue is for us, and for us, abortion is very personal. It's not about statistics. It's about real people who are waiting to be born and grow up. I heard Caitlin Chess, who's a, an up-and-coming theologian, and she's pretty amazing. She said the other day, all children are our children. They are ours before God, ours to steward, to look after, ours to look out for and protect. Heavenly Father, you gave us the gift of your only Son, for the sin of a dying world. You've no loss for the sins of others. And I pray that you will soften our hard hearts in this country. Turn us back to you. Turn us to you if we've never known you. We repent for the sins of this nation. We have lost so many beautiful children, so many missing lives that we will never know. Heal us, please. Turn our hearts to you. Fill us with compassion and love. And let us not cease to pursue justice for the unborn. Lord Jesus, I come to you on behalf of those who are hurting so badly over bad choices. Sometimes desperate choices. I ask on their behalf for your tender spirit to surround them and to draw them to you. Call them to your loving heart. Heal them and surround them with loving people. Lord, we thank you for our children. They are your gift, and we will always cherish them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.